Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Sarah Ganim. I'm the host of the podcast, Why Don't We Know?, which explores data deserts and government secrecy. And of course, today... In March, Why Don't We Know? taped a special episode live in Austin, Texas, on the podcast stage at South by Southwest EDU. Our live studio audience, thank you so much for being here. We discussed an emerging and disturbing trend that's never before been reported. Two attorneys who handle cases at the intersection of Title IX and sexual misconduct at schools told me that they've been noticing schools adding conditions to cases, meaning that students who report sexual misconduct must meet certain terms, sign away certain rights before they can proceed with their cases. The attorneys call them unconscionable agreements, and they've penned a letter about it to the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. The timing is important. Recently, the Biden administration released new guidance for how schools should handle allegations of sexual misconduct. The letter aims to help shape these new regulations. This is Why Don't We Know? In this episode, we're playing the live tape from South by Southwest with a few minor edits, along with an interview I did with one student who was made to sign one of these waivers. Yes, thank you so much. Two incredible people. Laura Dunn, who is uh, an attorney who has dedicated her career to advocating on behalf of and giving voice to victims uh, who are otherwise voiceless in a process of reporting sexual misconduct at school. And Kel O'Hara, who is a staff attorney at Equal Rights Advocates, which is a nonprofit agency. Kel represents students on campus when they uh, make allegations. Kel is specifically focused on LGBTQ survivors. So thank you so much, both of you. For those of you who are new to our podcast, Why Don't We Know looks at areas where common sense would tell you that there should be transparency and there should be data, but there isn't. And we often look at those issues using massive amounts of public records requests, casting a wide net, and then looking for trends in the information that we get back. Our first season focused specifically on schools, on public education. And a lot of our reporting in that first season showed that schools often use secrecy as a shield to shield themselves from having to share information that could help students otherwise be safer at school. Today, we're going to talk about an emerging trend that pivots off of a topic that we explored in season one in episodes nine and 10. Those episodes looked at the Clery Act and Title IX, two laws that mandate that schools investigate reports of sexual misconduct on campus. This is one of those topics that gets a lot of attention, of course, because the Title IX process is often scrutinized by both sides as being unfair. It's also highly politicized. The rules have changed often, often with political wins. And of course, those of you who are familiar know that this is very different from the criminal process. This is not even the civil process in the courts. This is a process that lives solely within schools and involves an investigation, a hearing, and it results in a conclusion. Sometimes that conclusion can lead to punishment if fault is found. But this is a process solely within the schools. We're not talking about the courts in any way. The problem is that the privacy that's afforded to students in this process also, we have found, is often abused by schools in order to shield themselves from scrutiny about how they handle these cases. So that brings us up to speed, because after reporting about some secrecy abuses in season one, Laura, 
You told me about an emerging trend on this topic, schools taking secrecy to a new extreme, forcing students who make allegations about sexual misconduct to sign what you're calling unconscionable agreements, waivers that further victimize students and take away their rights at the conclusion or during this process. Can you talk about some examples of unconscionable agreements? Yes. So as many of you know, Title IX, as well as the Clery Act, are creating campus procedures about how to respond to not just sexual harassment and violence, but dating and intimate partner violence, stalking, issues of gender-based violence. And while there is already structure for those processes and procedures through federal law and policy, schools have been adding additional agreements that aren't required for any reason, and putting them in place in a manner that suggests to students wrongly that they have to sign, they have to agree to get access to justice, to the next stage of the process, to the outcome. And I've seen this a few different times. And uh, when it came up at Villanova, that's when I finally said we have to do something on a bigger level because I'm seeing it pop up, but this was so extreme. I, as a lawyer, we had the decorum, but I was enraged reading this agreement, which said not only that my client had to sign to get access to evidence, despite that being her federal right to access it, along with me as her advisor, but the agreement said, if you violate this, we actually are allowed to take an adverse inference against you in the campus proceeding. So said a different way, if she wasn't sure about keeping the privacy of this evidence, they could decide when adjudicating her sexual assault that she would be less believed or favored because of this privacy agreement. So it wouldn't be about the merits of whether she was abused. It would be about her compliance with this agreement. And it outraged me. I absolutely told the client, do not sign that. You know, we are not agreeing to anything we do not have to agree to. And normally when schools go against an attorney, they don't try to play these games. They play these games with people who trust the institution, who may not have a lot of legal knowledge, but in this case, they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with me and said, well, we are going to actually withhold the evidence and not allow her to exercise her rights unless you agree. So trying to coerce agreement, even when someone has legal representation. So definitely a dangerous situation. And I wasn't just seeing it at Villanova. Even at K through 12, I was seeing different agreements pop up. This idea that somehow you can be protected on campus and be kept away from the person you're accusing unless you agreed, unless you made some promises yourself. There's a particular example in Texas at the K-12 level. Can you talk about that one? Absolutely. So we had a case in, in a Texas high school that turned out to be a serial offender. Our client reported that he sexually assaulted her on campus in a band room during the school day, a band room that apparently wasn't being monitored by adults. And as the school investigated this individual, they actually found he had done this to several different girls, either harassing or abusing them in different settings. So logically, there should be protections because until there was an adjudication that male student had a statutory right to access K through 12 education, and our client still obviously needed to access her education. But rather than just saying, we will separate this male student who is clearly affecting many different female students at our campus, they said, well, we're not going to do anything unless you sign this agreement. And when we got the agreement, it painted my client actually as having had a consensual encounter on campus potentially and said that she would have to stay away from this male student. And if she didn't, 
not only could it be enforced against her, they had very vague language that said, not only are we enforcing these terms, but we're going to enforce the spirit of the agreement. And while that may not sound dangerous, let me tell you that is the most dangerous. When something is vague and unclear, guess what? I see clients who post something on TikTok about being a survivor, and the person they accused said, well, they're violating the no contact agreement. They're talking about me. They're harassing me. Actually, I feel intimidated by their TikTok post. So anytime you have vagueness, it's very dangerous. It can be used to retaliate and actually turn against a survivor. So again, with my clients, I said, we cannot sign this. This is not necessary. You actually have a right inherent without any agreement to be protected. So do not sign this because they are trying to trick you into a situation and paint you into a corner because it's a legal agreement. The minute you sign that, you are binding yourself. You started seeing this problematic language in the last few years. Simultaneously, I think it's notable that, Kel, at ERA, you guys also started seeing this kind of problematic language crop up. Can you tell me the examples of problematic language that you guys found? Yeah, absolutely. So Equal Rights Advocates has a, um, a national advice and helpline. So I talked to students from all over the country through that program, and we've seen, I'll divide it into two different categories. One is students being asked to sign these non-disclosure agreements that are much more robust than they should be. Another type of agreement that we are seeing is, um, you know, what I'll call a, a litigation waiver, a waiver of claims um, against the university. So one case that I worked on was an early resolution agreement. Um, so that is rather than going through the full Title IX disciplinary process, um, the two parties both agree to resolve things outside of that process. What you have in that case is an agreement between the two parties that the school sort of helped set up for them. But the school had snuck into this agreement, this very in-depth, very legal sounding waiver of any claims against the school itself. So not when I asked them about it, they said, well, we want to make sure that neither party says that they are forced to enter this agreement, but they are waiving any right to litigate on any claim. <laughs> and it wasn't even an agreement between the school and the parties. It was, it was supposed to be an agreement between the parties. And so that was the kind of language that I, as an attorney, but an attorney that mostly works on, on campuses and not with these really formal contracts, like even I was sort of taken aback by that language and, and alarmed by that language. Um, it's not just asking these students to sign away their rights, asking them to go through this as part of the process, but also doing it in a way that um, if you are a student who is not an attorney, not experienced with the legal system, it's an inherently intimidating thing. And probably hard to, to know or to catch, right? It's mm -hmm. hard for a student to uh, necessarily catch that this is not, uh, does not jive with the law, which pivots. I mean, you guys are calling these waivers unconscionable agreements because I think the, the idea behind that terminology is that no conditions should be placed on a victim getting a fair investigation or a fair result. Essentially, that would be a school telling a victim, well, if you don't waive your rights, you don't waive your right to speak or your right to talk about what happened, your right to sue the school later, then we're going to let this harasser go. We're going to let this person go without any punishment on a technicality. It puts the onus on the victim is what I'm trying to say. Is the law on your side to correct this? Yeah, I, I think you just have to know what your rights are, and that is the barrier in, in the situation. The law makes it very clear that if you make a complaint of sexual violence, you have inherent rights. You have the right to review the evidence. You have to, the right to do that with an advisor, such as an attorney. You have the right to the outcome. And in fact, there is a longstanding prohibition against forcing survivors to stay silent about the outcome, even if parts of the ongoing process may be protected 
appropriately, the outcome is always for the survivor to speak about. So the law has been clear for a very long time, and that's why it's so alarming to see these agreements that all of a sudden they've, it's almost like they found a way around the law. If we can trick people to give away their rights without really knowing it and appreciating it, well, then we won't have this bad PR if that outcome that wasn't very favorable is shared publicly. It used to be that there was a lot of variation in these processes, campus to campus. There was a lot of press about that. And then the Trump administration created extensive regulations. But as you mentioned, schools can still add on top of that. And that's where you're seeing this problematic language. And to be clear, not all schools have these waivers. Some schools don't make people sign anything at the beginning, middle, or end of this process, but some do. And we have seen that the language is different everywhere. We know that because at the Breckner Center, we use public records requests to sort of get a lay of the land and a national landscape. So we routinely will send out 80 to 100 public records requests at the largest public universities in the country looking for documents like these resolution agreements. And we did that in this case. And we did find that there are many schools that don't have any of this language in their resolution agreements or at any part of the process. However, we saw some that did have some problematic language. There was language that creates conditions on seeing or receiving evidence. Some of it suggests that students might not even be able to talk to law enforcement about their case. Laura, this is one where I wanted to ask you, can language like that stop students from even getting an attorney to help them? So the language that we're seeing in a lot of these cases is very broad. It makes no exemptions to talk to a therapist, talk to a prosecutor, talk to law enforcement. Almost never is there exception for your attorney. Sometimes they'll put advisors and sometimes for minors, they'll remember to say you can talk to your parents. But most of the times the schools are writing it as if it's a blanket. And that is very deeply problematic, um, especially let's say you're going through the evidence and you find something very traumatizing, you can't then talk to a therapist in a privileged context about the trauma cause? Like that doesn't even make sense. So a lot of this is, is written without thought or feeling, quite frankly, for survivors and what they're going through. It's written with the lens of how can we best as a school put a lid on this? How can we control the situation? So yes, very damaging language is out there that I think is actually impeding not just healing for survivors, but the ability to talk to an attorney. Some of them, even as an advisor, when I go into hearings, I know at the University of Maryland, they had some language that said, I could not use anything that I had learned, even though I'm not just that person's advisor, but actually their attorney, their legal representative, that I somehow couldn't use that information ever again unless I notified the school first. And I remember being alarmed because it's like, so you think I have to tell you if I, as a lawyer, am about to sue you on behalf of my client? Like, no, I don't. I don't owe you any duty at all. But it's cute that you think you can slide that on a piece of paper across the table and think that I'll sign it without knowing what you're actually saying. But people are signing these. I actually know a ton of uh, the accused and their attorneys will sign it as if it's nothing. And I, I won't let my clients or myself even sign those. We, we refuse whenever we can per the law. And where we can't, we negotiate it down to the bare minimum of what would be acceptable. Let's pause for a second. In late March, after we taped this episode, I reached a student at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, who told me about a waiver they were told to sign in order to see the evidence and interviews collected in their case. They had not yet signed the non-disclosure when we talked. Here's part of our conversation. 
I'm actually currently a sophomore at UAB, which is the University of Alabama at Birmingham. When did the incident happen? You said you reported it in November. In my case, I'm charges for sexual harassment and also intimate partner violence. So the like official date on the paperwork is around like January 30th, 2021, I think. Because a lot of this stuff happened last year because it was like multiple incidents. It occurred over like a relationship. So fair to say happened a relationship your freshman year? Yeah, definitely. When you decided to file, did you have any expectations from your school? Were you optimistic about the process? Did you expect trouble? Like, how did you go into it? Did you go into it feeling like you were going to get a fair shot? I think I was initially, well, I was cautious for a long time to file anything. I know the climate today and everything. And I know that like kind of the odds are stacked against me, you know, I'm queer. I'm a woman-ish and like I'm a person of color and I'm going up against a white man. So (laughs) it's kind of a thing of like that. But also I tend to be just like a pretty optimistic person in general. So I came into this like hoping for the best and uh, hoping that they would take me seriously, but also knowing that I would have to advocate for myself and do a lot of my own work to be treated fairly and at the same level that my assaulter would be treated. At what point in the process did you come across this non-disclosure agreement? And can you tell me, did you immediately recognize it as a problem? Yeah, I actually came across the NDA pretty early. I would say around like December or January of this year. Kel O'Hara from ERA, who was part of our taping at South by Southwest, is this student's attorney. It requires that the evidence and testimony and things like that from the process are kept confidential. Um, I think that is fine. It creates carve-outs for speaking to attorneys and therapists and people like that, which is what's required under Title IX. But the part that I think goes too far is this part that says, I agree to keep confidential all matters relating to the Title IX process, and I further agree not to discuss or disclose any information about the Title IX process itself. Survivors absolutely have the right to talk about maybe not the details of the testimony that came out and the evidence that came out, but they do have the right to talk about, um, here's how this process went and here's how it made me feel and um, here are the problems I have with it. We want survivors to be able to talk about what their experiences are like, especially if those experiences are unethical or illegal. And so even though it creates these carve-outs that say, you know, to the extent applicable by law that, you know, you're allowed to like protect these legal requirements. I think that this goes past the point of what is permissible by the Department of Education. Essentially, the school does not want her talking about their process for adjudicating these cases. Is that accurate? That's how I read it. Is that okay? Does the Department of Education allow that? To talk about how the process works? To silence survivors from talking about the process. No, you're not allowed to silence survivors from talking about the process. It is permissible to keep it confidential, but to keep like your process itself confidential, there's nothing that would allow you to say you can't talk about this process at all. Do you think that would stop someone from filing a lawsuit against the school or going to a news organization to tell their story if things weren't fair or in their opinion were not fair? Does it stop someone like from 
doing something about it. Oh, absolutely. So what this agreement says is, I understand that if I violate this confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement, that I may be subject to disciplinary action up to and including termination of my employment and or expulsion from the university. Expulsion? Yes. They could be kicked out of school for talking about an unfair process. Yeah. A lot of people would not think to question this. They would just be intimidated. They would just see this as, well, I guess I can't talk about it at all. And so that would just, that would have a chilling effect, right? Katie, how did you feel about this when you talked it through with Kel or when you read it yourself? Immediately, it kind of broke a little bit of trust that I had with my university. Obviously, I'm not like super legally informed. I'm a sophomore in college, but like, you know, I've heard about NDAs through like celebrity drama and things. And immediately, I think I was concerned that it was just going to be another way to shut me up and to silence me. Will they still move forward with your case if you don't sign it? Will the hearing still happen? And I guess what I'm trying to say is, is it on you to make the decision whether or not they bring this person to account for what happened? Like, if you don't sign it, will they say, we're not going to move forward and we don't have to deal with this person who's accused of sexual violence? At UAB, they will continue with the hearing. And so what this is saying is, sure, you can go forward, but you don't have any sort of meaningful opportunity to review and respond the other side's case. So if there was information in there that was misleading or inaccurate or otherwise harmful in those ways, there would be no meaningful way to respond to it as part of the investigation. Do you think that this aside, if this had if this NDA didn't exist, would this have been an experience that you felt was fair? I think if I didn't have to worry about signing this NDA, I think I would have trusted my university more and I think I would have been respected more throughout this process. You plan to sign it? Yes. Because you don't want to be at a disadvantage at the hearing? Absolutely, yes. And you feel if you don't sign it, you will be at a disadvantage at the hearing? Yes. It's not just that you would be at a disadvantage, it's that from my perspective as an attorney, these due process rights would be undermined. Why do you think this is happening now? What's the motivation for schools to place these restrictions on students? You know, I think you can trace it to a couple of things. The regulations that we saw coming out under um, the Trump administration really focused on, among other things, limiting liabilities for schools. And so we saw this shift away from what is best for students, um, how can we help you maintain access to your education, which is the point of Title IX, and instead started looking at how do we keep locking down this process further and further and further to protect ourselves, to make sure that we're not getting um, any sort of pushback or criticism or awareness placed on this, and really see you know, a lot of things moving towards if we just control this in more and more ways then that will eliminate the problem because then we don't have to acknowledge it. Yeah, I I am going to blame the Trump administration for like opening Pandora's box again. Like all these advocates worked so hard to put the lid on it and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, here we are again. Like here we are again dealing with colleges and universities, figuring out new and creative ways to sweep things under the rug. And by doing what? Taking people in trauma 
literally desperate for justice and safety and saying, well, just sign this piece of paper. Don't read it. Don't worry about it. Just sign it. And that'll get you justice. That's how you move forward. It is unconscionable. And, um, you know, to see it more and more, I, I can't think it's a coincidence. I think people are taking advantage of this political moment while our country is distressed with COVID and the Biden administration is looking to change these rules, but hasn't been able to get around to it and hopefully will in the next couple months, we are stuck. We are stuck with this bad regime and we are stuck with schools who think they are above the law and don't have to be accountable. Laura, you want to bring this to the attention of the Biden administration. Your law firm, along with Kell's organization, Equal Rights Advocates, you're jointly writing a letter about this to the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. Tell me what this letter is going to say. So we've compiled a lot of examples showing that this idea of creating fake agreements that people have to sign to get access to their rights is coming all across the country. K through 12, higher ed, doesn't matter. It's finding its way into requests for accommodations, safety, resolutions. I mean, you name it, every part of the process, they're figuring out some creative way to get a new agreement in there. So we want to highlight this is nationwide. And we've been able to identify just as two organizations, several examples. So how many more are out there that we're not even seeing? But we're going to ask for some type of guidance. Uh, if we can get a regulation, some type of rule against creating false agreements, that would be wonderful. But at minimum, we need guidance. We need the federal agencies enforcing these laws, like the U.S. Department of Education, and justice to say we are not going to allow schools who are in a superior position of creating these systems of justice to take advantage of students who are desperate and using those systems. Anything you want to add, Kel? Yeah, you know, we've touched on why is this such a, a vulnerable population? And I guess that the thing I you know want to keep just hammering home is if you sign this agreement before you've been working with an attorney, before you have an advisor who might know that this is improper, you might never know to start questioning that, right? Like you are in such a position where you are just trying to do the best you can. And there is for a lot of students an inherent level of trust in their university because they assume that the university is on their side. And so this, you know, agreement is really about saying, okay, if we're what we're looking for um, out of some sort of regulation around this is saying, how do we honor the position that students are in here? Not just the trauma they experience, but the position they're in in terms of the university, there's an inherent power imbalance there. We talk a lot about, you know, the power imbalance between the survivor and the respondent, the, the person who harmed them, but there's also a power imbalance with the school. And so are they aware that they don't have to enter in these agreements, that they should be potentially reviewing these sorts of agreements with an attorney ahead of time? Um, is there transparency in that process where they're allowed to see those agreements before they have to sign them so they're not in a position where they're being told, okay, we're at this meeting, here's this document, you need to sign it right now, because that's an inherently pretty intimidating environment. And you might not know or think, okay, I need to slow down, I need to just take a step back, I should be reviewing all this. So this is about working with not just the, the law and the legal requirements, because frankly, we see schools that violate the law all the time. The law or the regulation being in step with what we want to see does not necessarily fix the problem. But it is this broader awareness that Title IX is supposed to be about protecting access to education. It's about supposed to be, um, you know, helping these students on campus. So how do we shift this process um, that is becoming increasingly formalized and increasingly intimidating back towards something where survivors can engage fairly in this process, um, have a, a real shot at not just getting justice, but feeling they, they are protected and feeling like they're respected. And what does it mean to do that both on a, a federal regulatory level um, and also to have that culture within the institutions themselves. 
The letter is going to cite several specific examples, all slightly different in what they restrict, but it seems to fit this overarching theme of over-legalizing this process, which is not supposed to be a legal process or something that looks like a legal process or resembles a legal process. And it seems to me like instead of trying to fix some of the criticism, fix some of the problems with the process, instead schools are just resorting to, let let me protect myself, let me shield myself from any negative consequences that may come from my bad practices. Am I overstating that? I don't think so. Um, Something that I, I like to remind people of when we talk about how these cases are handled is that if you physically assault someone on your campus, so if you, if you, you know, get in a fight, punch someone in the face, something like that, you don't have to go through this process. Whatever disciplinary process the school has in place is allowed to proceed. And, and we're creating these separate rules for sexual misconduct. And so there's this shift towards this over-legalization around this one very particular issue. You know, I don't think we have nearly enough time to go into the full extent of why that is, but it's, it is inherently political. And I think that the shift towards this over-legalization is really rooted in and coming from this, in some ways, um, misguided sense of what is, is justice supposed to look like? What is fairness supposed to look like? We've conflated justice and fairness with legalization. And so we're creating a process in schools, not run by judges, not run by attorneys. You don't have the right to an attorney, but you might be able to get one where students are having to, to engage in a process that is more and more like um, like a court hearing. And so the over-legalization is, is really misunderstanding the problem, where it's saying, if we keep putting more and more formal rules around this, we'll fix the problems that are here, instead of looking at the whole system and saying, are we actually doing this in the best way that is going to help survivors stay safe and feel protected? And to add to that kind of problem is we have institutions who have dogs in the fight. You know, we think it's between the two parties, but the institution always has an interest. They have an interest in their institution's reputation, in the numbers of admissions, in, you know, the ability to attract future students and good faculty. They have a dog in the fight. And uh, that is the number one thing as a D.C.-based attorney doing national policy on this. I am so sick of policymakers, legislators, thinking that schools are benevolent. They are not. I don't know how to explain that any other way than my entire career. They are not. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Unfortunately, these are businesses like every other business. We call them schools, and they should have better ideals, but they're still human entities, right? We still get distracted, and so we don't have objective people putting out this fair process, we have people who are worried about their star athlete that was accused, who are worried about the tenure professor that has brought a lot of grants into their business, right? They have a dog in the fight. So we have to create accountability for institutions first and foremost, before we can even then address the fairness between the parties. We often talk about this in the context of higher ed, which is, I think, where we are right now in this discussion too. But As flawed of a process as it is at the university level, I think the K-12 level is just as much of a mess, but it doesn't get the same kind of attention. People don't talk about it as much. Uh, You certainly don't see as many headlines around misconduct at the K-12 level. Laura, I know you've had cases that deal at that level. Can you shed some light on what's going on there? Absolutely. So um, under the Obama administration, there was a big push under Title IX in higher ed. And right at the tail end of the White House task force that existed back then, we started to talk about K through 12. And it was like 
just this area that was just going to be a jungle once we walked into it, and it is. There are still schools, school districts who don't know what Title IX is, who don't have a Title IX coordinator, who don't have a Title IX policy, whose parents and students have never heard the term Title IX, don't know what it means. I currently have a lawsuit against the Charlotte Mecklenburg School District, and what I have found is they are actually isolating minors away from their parents to make them write statements before their parents are notified, to make them sign agreements, to get safety, quote unquote, before their parents are notified. These are minors who literally can't sign agreements uh, as a legal matter, right? They're not enforceable, but schools are doing it to intimidate them. And yes, some of those agreements don't say they can talk to their parents. So we're seeing, again, this position of authority over minors being abused at the K through 12 level. And, and it's terrifying, but there's just not the infrastructure. There's not the awareness or attention at K through 12 yet. And hopefully with the Biden administration looking at these Title IX regulations that Trump have left in place, can start thinking about how do we get more messages into the K-12 through space about how to do this right. And one of the easiest ways is you have to tell the parent of a minor. And it is a sensitive topic. We are talking about sexual violence. Not all survivors will want that information known by their parents. But guess what? They're minors, right? There needs to be an adult in the room, even if it's a hired attorney or an advocate supporting them. What specifically did the Trump era regulations do that opened the door for this? Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot in the Trump administration guidance um, and regulations that led to this. So one is requiring this live hearing with cross-examination through advisors. So some states, I, I live and work in California, um, we had a hearing requirement in California before those regulations came out, but all of a sudden you have required nationally this sort of uh, very formalized process that is required for everyone that includes this um, very adversarial feeling questioning process done through, through an advisor, which means that rather than having whoever's leading the hearing asking questions, you can have um, an attorney, sometimes a very aggressive attorney, asking questions of, of a traumatized student about what happened to them. You saw um, a reduction in um, what schools are liable for. So previously, schools um, could investigate whatever sexual misconduct came up. Now schools are not allowed to investigate misconduct that happened off campus and not within an educational program or activity. So, um, you know, where I went to, to undergrad, I lived off campus, a block away from campus. It was right there. Um, if something had happened at my house, a block away from campus, the school wouldn't be allowed to investigate. And so you have all of these requirements, and there are some that are about K through 12, but they're clearly not designed for that at all. K through 12 is clearly an afterthought. So you have uh, a focus on this increased legalization, this increased formalization, um, and calling that due process or fairness, um, and also at the same time, this push to reduce liability for schools. And so at the end of the day, what you're left with is a scheme where you have survivors intimidated to come forward because they understand increasingly that this is a, a stressful and intense process, and one where schools are required to look into these things less and less and less. And Laura, how does that lead to these unconscionable agreements? Make the link for me. I think schools have been emboldened, right? There is this increasingly legalized process, so why not add one more agreement in that helps them? Because nothing prevents it. Nothing inherently limits that. In fact, the regulations, while admittedly only a few pages worth, they had almost 2,000 pages of preamble 
just like a nice way of like saying like the free flowing thoughts of the Trump administration about what they think about this topic before the regulations. So a lot of schools will say, well, I read the preamble and it says that I'm allowed to create agreements and protect information. So that's why you're seeing this. Well, preamble is not law. The Trump administration is no longer here. And what you've created is actually unlawful and unconscionable. So I don't really care what your reasoning is. This is not required. But unfortunately, the Trump administration really emboldened a lot of schools to go out, experiment, and to try. And it was like, you know, what's the saying? When the teachers are away, the kids will play. Like, the Obama administration and its enforcement was gone. Trump administration was only going to enforce if it was to protect those accused. And otherwise, really wasn't going to do much. So schools said, well, this is, this is our open season. We're allowed to keep adding to this process. And we're going to add in a way that favors us as an institution. After many, many years of doing this, Laura, do you believe that schools at all levels wish they could wash their hands of this process? Is that where this is going? I mean, I'm a journalist, I'm not a lawyer, but I've covered a lot of these stories and it seems like it's always negative headlines for them. And then the lawsuits are obviously always going to land in the category of negative two, right? And those lead to more negative headlines. And when I first heard about this, I thought, well, forcing them to waive their rights to speak, forcing them to waive their rights to sue. This seems like schools just want to be like, we don't want to deal with this. Nobody can talk about it. Nobody can do anything about it. Is that a fair assessment? I think it is fair to say that schools are looking out for their own interests. They are trying to avoid some level of criticism. I I don't envy school administrators. It, I'm not saying that it is somehow easy to do what literally all the rest of society has failed to do, which is to be fair and encourage survivors to come forward, get support, and to go through this process to ideally make the entire community safe, right? Our criminal system is the biggest failure of all. And yet at the school level, they're being asked to do something similar of taking these cases on and doing justice to them. So I don't envy that position, but it is necessary. And schools of any institution that exists should be the most proud to have that burden on their shoulders because they are supposed to treat everyone fairly. They are supposed to be gateways of equality, you know? So why, why not be the front edge of ensuring justice after sexual misconduct, after sexual harassment and violence? Why not take on that burden gratefully? But of course, at least at the higher ed level, it is about how many students are you bringing in? What's the newest building? What's your sports team? It's not have I kept my students safe? And so we as a society have to shift that narrative and really hold the institutions we're a part of accountable to safety first because only safety allows for education to occur. Kelly, you mentioned this, but it's something that I've also encountered in interviewing survivors of sexual misconduct on campus. They often feel very betrayed by the process. And sometimes they will say things along the lines of the process was you know, almost as painful as the original assault that led to the process because they feel a kinship with their school. They, they like generally love where they go to school. They feel pride in their school in their campus in being a part of that community. And then they don't feel that reciprocated because of the way this process is run. And again, I mean, Laura, when you first told me this, it just seemed like instead of embracing what could be goodwill there, right? They, they've sort of begun to say, we're not going to change this behavior. We're not going to try to fix this problem. Let's just get more creative in making sure nobody hears about it. Yeah, Sarah, I'd actually take that a step further. Um, 
I've talked to multiple survivors who don't just say this was almost as traumatic as what originally happened to me. I talked to a lot of survivors who say this was more traumatic than what happened to me. And that is across underlying incidents, right? It's not people who had experienced less severe forms of sexual misconduct are the ones feeling that way. And Jennifer Freyd is a researcher out of University of Oregon. She has a, a theory that supports this called institutional betrayal, which is exactly what you're just describing. When you have, when you are a member of an organization or a community that you rely on for your well-being, that you put your faith in, that you put your identity in, and they are the ones to let you down. That is an independent source of trauma and one that really, you know, in the educational context, infiltrates all areas of your education. Um, it starts, there's this trickle-down effect of, well, if they're not willing to listen to me about this and believe me about this and support me about this, then, you know, why am I in school here? And can I trust these people on my campus? And does anyone here actually believe in me? And that is the part that is most challenging for me um, as an attorney is watching these students. Um, a lot of them will end up transferring. A lot of them will end up um, not wanting to complete their education at all. A lot of them will sort of go through, if they do stay on campus, the rest of their time there, really disengaged and checked out. And I think that the fact that the changes that we're talking about right now are are leading to this um, increasing dehumanization of those survivors um, and decreased concern for their emotional well-being and this overemphasis on this, you know, quasi-legal process is losing the, the heart of who these students are. These are, a lot of them are students who are out on their, you know, if we're talking about college, a lot of them are um, out on their own for the first time um, away from home. They are trying to start this new chapter of their lives, start um, what being an adult means. And they're approaching that with this, in this environment that they feel fundamentally does not um, believe them or trust them or want them to be okay. And that is a problem for so many levels. And I think what's additionally sad about the institutional betrayal is there may be like a germ of good that was attempted that has led to this crazy situation. So um, speaking to the human part of it, a lot of people will say, well, to be neutral, I can't care, right? Like I just have to say, well, sorry, this was a bad experience. You, you couldn't even say that, right? Acknowledging it was a bad experience might be viewed as not neutral. So they would say, you know, sorry, you're going through this. But we have to be fair. We have to be fair. We have to be fair. Do you have to be fair when there's a rapist on your campus who could be raping other people, has raped other people? Is that when fairness is the most priority or is safety actually the number one? And I'm getting a little enraged talking about it because the trumpet regulations have a provision about emergency removal. You are, in fact, allowed to remove potentially violent individuals who have harmed others and may harm others again from your campus, yet I'm not seeing it used at all because of the standards set, which are like immediate physical threat. So I have survivors who've been bitten all over their body who have assailants who have harmed eight other girls, and that person gets to go to class with them tomorrow over and over. That person gets to be on campus, go to the football game with them, be on the football team. Like, and they see this, how can we call That's not neutrality, right? If you are neutral in the face of oppression, right? You are in fact the oppressor. You have stood on that side. So we have gone so far beyond this idea of being fair to actually coming across completely indifferent to the suffering of survivors. And, you know, even these, you know, agreements had some good intention at some point. We don't want people to be talking about this because it could contribute to retaliation and rumors in a hostile environment. That's a noble goal. 
but that's not actually how it ended, right? Then they added in the waiver and then they added in, you know, this. And, and it's just, we are missing the point. It needs to be refocused and recentered. And hopefully that can be done within this administration. But if not, it needs to continue to be a priority for bluntly every political party. So how do you fix this? I mean, will this issue of these waivers, will your letter be part of the discussion in April when the Biden regulations come out? That is the goal. The goal is to make sure that this letter gets to the Department of Education as it's rethinking the regulations in place to also kind of go into the feedback and the thoughts whenever there is feedback on those regulations. We do want to make sure that these practices don't continue. And step one is always shedding a light. Like, Colleges, universities, K through 12s, we know you've done this. We see you as an advocacy group, and we're not going to let this happen. We're going to stand with survivors and be on that front line. And if we have to do litigation, if we have to strike down your injunctions, if we have to take action, that sadly is the next step. I don't love suing people despite being a lawyer, but it is a necessary tool to back up that message of this is wrong. And I'll add to that, you know, what does it mean to change this? Um, Outside of the law, when we look more broadly, um, the same researcher who came up with institutional betrayal also came up with a theory that she calls institutional courage. And that is, can the institution and people within the institution look at themselves, look at the system and be honest about it and what's working and what's not and be willing to stand up for what's right? And that is um, a much bigger ask than we would like it to be, right? If you are so hyper-focused on liability that you're sort of glazing over the parts of these um, policies and these regulations that allow you to take meaningful action because you are so afraid of a lawsuit. That's not institutional courage. But if you can sit there and say, I care about you, the student, being safe more than I care about what type of legal action might be taken. I care about doing the right thing more than what legal action might be taken. Our clients are not vindictive people. These are not people. We're not vindictive people. We are not out here, um, <laughs> you know, like Laura said, we're not here suing and, and pursuing um, these types of legal remedies because we enjoy it or think it's fun. Um, we're doing it because it's the only way to force action. And, and what could it be like if schools were willing to have these conversations and re-examine their systems and their policies without this legal lens on top of it? And we're not there right now. We're not near that right now. But it is something I, you know, I think about a lot and hope for a lot is what if we were having this, these conversations in collaboration, with an eye to what is best for students, what is best for survivors, and how can we really care as advocates, as a campus community, as people invested in education about what we're doing and not just make it about the law. I wanna thank you both for being here and also thank our audience. This was a really important conversation. If you'd like to hear more, you can always listen to our podcast. We're available on all the major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more. This is Why Don't We Know. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, with additional research and reporting by Brittany Suzanne and Brett Posner-Ferdman. This episode was edited by Amy Fu and James Sullivan. The theme music for Why Don't We Know was composed by Pete Redman. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org. A print companion piece for this episode appeared in USA Today. Please check it out.